Let's put our hands together and praise the Lord for exciting new ministry. One of the missions of our church is not just to build and grow our church, it's also to bless the city uh, that we get to be a part of. And because of your incredible, absolutely incredible generosity over the last couple of years, we were able to give a half million dollars to get that ministry, Reese City, off the ground, get that started, uh, help get them into a facility. Uh, it's a ministry that's grown up right here out of our church and is now operating uh, in one of the most strategic places of need. Uh, and that is all entirely because of the way that you have responded so generously over the last couple of years to the mission of God. Uh, another one of our missions is to see the gospel spread throughout the world. So each Christmas, we try to give a gift of three or $400,000 to the International Mission Board, which is the agency through which we send most of our church planners overseas. Uh, just this week, I got a note from one of our team leaders in, in India, uh, a guy named Jesse, who, who said this in his report, listen to this. This year, our team has trained hundreds of national partners in a year-long biblical studies program. We meet monthly with these men for teaching on the Bible, their families, um, uh, how to be fathers and, and good husbands, and, and also church planning. In order to graduate from this program, the men are required to not only pass the exams, but three of their disciples must also pass the same exams. And they have to also start new churches, uh, two new churches, excuse me. So before we let them graduate, they have to start at least two new churches. That's taking it up a level. Uh, that wasn't required when I graduated seminary, but that's pretty awesome. In one district in the eastern part of our state, 18 of these program graduates have started 62 new churches in the last three years. You say, how are we going to get to 1,000 churches in our generation, which is our, our goal as a church, to plant 1,000 churches? It's this way right here. Uh, he says, we are seeing the book of Acts happen again right here in central India. Um, here's my question when I read that. Isn't that the kind of thing that you want to be a part of? Isn't that the kind of thing that you want to know that you're... Is the ministry and the legacy of this church? Well, December is a time of year when people are always really generous to our church. And so because of that, we end up giving a lot of money away to places like the International Mission Board. Um, we're hoping that by the end of December, we can get to $33 million in what we've called our all-in giving over the last couple of years. Um, but if we can go beyond that amount, we're gonna give the first $100,000 beyond that amount to um, the International Mission Board to, uh, as an additional gift, in addition to the already three or 400,000 we give to them so that we can see more things like this happen. So uh, again, Summit Church, I wanna challenge you. Um, and I'm, by the way, if you're a guest, I'm not talking to you at all. If you're not a Christian, I'm definitely not talking to you. Um, but if you're a part of the Summit Church, I wanna challenge you to think about being involved generously in the mission of God this December. Uh, I wanna challenge you to set a benchmark for yourself, for your family. My family does this every year. We say that the largest gift we wanna give to anybody at Christmas time ought to be to the Lord Jesus Christ, because while we love to give gifts to each other and we do that, uh, we know that, that really the ultimate gift that was given to us, the reason we have Christmas is because of what Jesus gave to us. And so we want to respond to him by giving the largest gift we give um, to him at, at, at this time of year. Um, so I want you to ask God to help you set a goal to help grow in the generosity of your spirit, your love for the mission during this season. Uh, another thing that your generosity has made possible, we have coming up in about nine or 10 days, and that is Christmas at the DPAC. Uh, I hope that you are ready for this. Uh, three people are ready for it over here on this side of the, of the room that I'm in. Um, Christmas at DPAC, there are two kinds of people at the Summit Church. 
There are those of you who have been to this in the past and you've already invited 10 to 15 people to come with you for this year. Then there are those of you that have never been, uh, which is the only reason you're not in that first category. I, I do not have to persuade people that have been to come and bring people. They're the ones who are back there taking stacks of tickets like 40 and 50 high and we're like, hey, calm down a little bit, let some other people invite people too. Um, but if you have never been to this, I'm telling you, I, I can brag on it because I have very little part of it. Uh, I mean, I preach the gospel in it, so I have a part. But uh, the actual programming, I don't have a lot of part of. It is phenomenal. You do not want to miss it. Uh, so grab that December 23rd and 24th. Uh, it, tickets are, are free, but uh, you'll need to get those. Okay? If you got your Bible at all of our campus locations, I want you to take them out now. And I want you to open them to the Gospel of Luke the very first chapter, Luke chapter one. We are in a short series called Do Not Be Afraid in which we're looking at the three fear not statements in the gospel of Luke that surround the birth of Jesus. Luke is the, the gospel writer is showing us in these statements, listen to this, he's showing us how the birth of Jesus addresses some of our most primal fears. Christmas, which is a time of joy for many, as it should be, for others is a time when the fears and hurts of their life tend to come to the surface. So last weekend, Pastor Chris talked about how the birth of Jesus dealt with the fear of disappointment. He talked about how Zachariah dealt with the fear of disappointment. So that was our focus last week, the fear of disappointment. He also talked about the fear of snakes. Uh, if you recall that. Uh, I don't know if you saw this last Sunday um, night, but the Discovery Channel had on a special about a guy who zipped himself up in a special Teflon suit so that he could be the first human being swallowed alive by an anaconda. Um, just to, out of curiosity, anybody else see that besides me? I thought, how awesome to go home from church after that sermon and then to see a special on this very thing. Um, I, I'm a pretty adventurous guy, but even I look at that and say, who does that? Who thinks this is the mark that I want to leave on the human race, is I want to be the first man swallowed alive by an anaconda. An anaconda, of course, is the largest snake in the world. It can grow to be up to 35 feet long and can swallow a 350-pound animal whole. Um, watching this last Sunday night reminded me of something that I shared with you a few years ago that supposedly appeared in a Peace Corps manual that trained volunteers who were going to serve in the Peace Corps in the Amazon region. Um, now, I cannot verify the veracity of this. It may be more of an urban legend, but supposedly the instructions um, that were given to Peace Corps volunteers in the Amazon um, gave them the protocol for what to do if you were attacked by an anaconda. All right, so this is good to know. Here's supposedly what it said. Number one, don't run. Don't run. They say the anaconda is fast enough to catch you. I say, let the anaconda prove it. And by the way, if I'm with somebody else, I don't even have to outrun the anaconda. I just got to outrun that dude, right? No greater love. No greater love. Number two, lie supine and keep arms close to your side and your legs together. Number three, tuck your chin in. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge you and climb over your body. Number five, do not panic. If there were ever a time that God had designed the emotion of panic for, it would be this situation. Number six, the snake will probably begin to swallow you from the feet in first, probably. Do not try to resist. At this stage, it is especially important not to panic. Number seven, the snake will begin to suck your legs into its body. This will take a long time. You must lie perfectly still during this whole process. Number eight, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly and with as little movement as possible, reach down, Take your knife 
and very gently insert it into the snake's mouth between its mouth and your leg. Then suddenly rip upward and sever its head. Number nine, be sure you have your knife. <laughs> so there are, there are good fears and there are bad fears. Good fears, like this one, save your life. Bad fears paralyze and destroy it. Well, last weekend, Pastor Chris showed us how Zachariah's fear of disappointment immobilized him, causing him to disbelieve the promises of God and almost miss entirely what God had for him, for his family, and ultimately through him, the blessing he was wanting to bring to, to Israel and the world. This weekend, we're going to look at a very similar fear, one felt by the Virgin Mary herself, but one that she, unlike Zechariah, would overcome. It is the fear of hopelessness. So first, let's get a definition of hope so that we're all um, working from the same page here. Hope, in the Christian sense, is the expectation of future blessings and the confidence that the best is yet to come. Hope, in the Christian sense, is the expectation of future blessings and the confidence that the best is not behind you, that the best is in front of you. Based on that definition, I would say that we have many people in our community this weekend who are living without hope. We have people who are asking, am I ever going to be happy again? Maybe you've suffered some setback in your job. Maybe it's been in your health or your career and it just feels so final. You wonder if there's anything left to look forward to. You've gone through a divorce or this is the first year that you're going into a Christmas season with your family looking completely different than it has in times past. And you're just saying, are the best parts of my life behind me is all this anticipation I had when I was a child or a teenager or a college student of all that life was gonna bring to me. Now it seems like a quick and very dull dream. Is it all behind me? Are the best days behind me? Recent events in our nation have made many people doubt whether there's any hope for justice or real harmony in our society. These are all really legitimate questions. In this message, you're gonna see how Mary faced and overcame the fear of hopelessness, which we all have, and how you, in her example, can overcome hopelessness too. Luke chapter one, verse 26 is where we're gonna be, so uh, let's read it here together. And by the way, when I say that, I mean I read you, sit there and listen. Uh, I clarify that because I've done this before and had like four people start read with me and it was kind of awkward, but just listen. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Here's the first question you ought to ask of this text. Why is Mary troubled? Why is she afraid? Well, the obvious answer would seem to be that she just saw an angel. Angels in the Bible don't appear as the chubby, harmless looking adolescents floating around in togas with toy bows and arrows that we like to depict them as in pop culture. Angels in the Bible are towering, majestic warriors who, whenever they show up, their first words are always, wait, 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 don't die, don't die. That's how impressive they seem to be. So maybe it's that that scared Mary is that she's seeing the angel and that's why he says, do not fear. That's a good explanation. And I'm sure she was overwhelmed at the sight of Gabriel. But did you notice that's not specifically what the text said she was alarmed at? It says very specifically, she was alarmed at his saying, not his appearance, at his saying. What was it that he had said to her? What was the greeting? Well, it was calling her, oh, favored one. 
Who am I, she asked, for you to show up in all your heavenly glory with all of your attention on me, telling me that I'm somebody special? I was trying to imagine what this would be like. Imagine if in the middle of this service, at whatever campus you're at, um, suddenly um, in through the doors and the exits came several dozen secret service agents. And they start looking around and scanning the crowd. And eventually one looks up at me and he says, I'm sorry, pastor, to interrupt, but we're looking for blank. And they insert your name in that blank. And they say, we have a, a matter that the president of the United States wants to speak with so-and-so. It is a matter of urgent national security. Your response to that is, uh, who am I and why am I so essential to national security? That is something like Mary is feeling at this moment. Who am I that God would send his top secret service agent to tell me that I'm somebody special? Listen, for you to understand that you are under the gaze and under the direct attention of the almighty God is frightening. And that's what Mary felt at that moment. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, here's your second question. Is Mary's question there a question of doubt? Kind of. She says, uh, I'm a virgin, and virgins generally don't have babies, God. Isn't this the same kind of question that got Zachariah in trouble? You remember last week, Gabriel had told Zachariah that he and his wife are going to have a son. The problem, of course, is that, is that Zachariah and his wife are both octogenarians. And Zachariah's response is like, uh, God, uh, I'm no spring chicken, and my wife, I mean, she's old. And for that question, Gabriel put Zechariah into timeout for nine months where he couldn't talk, remember? And look what happens to Mary, verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child that was born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the month with her, sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Zechariah got put into timeout. Mary got an explanation. Why? Did Zechariah just get the grumpy angel? Is that what it was? <laughs> no, it's the same angel, Gabriel. Maybe he hadn't had his morning coffee yet. He's in sort of a bad mood. He's kind of a hair trigger and bam, he just, no, of course not. It's because there are two different kinds of doubts. Both ask questions, but there's bad doubt and there's good doubt. There's a kind of doubt you see that grows out of disbelief. It is proud and defiant. It looks inward at itself in bitterness. And it says to the promises of God, there's no way this could be true. That was Zechariah. Then there is the kind of doubt that grows out of a humble wonder. It stares upward with awe and it says, how can these things be true? I don't understand God, but I wanna understand and I'm willing to learn that was Mary. Tim Keller calls this the difference between dishonest doubt and honest doubt. Dishonest doubt, he says, is proud and, and lazy. It responds to God's revelation by simply saying that's impossible or rolling his eye, its eyes and saying in the more contemporary phraseology, that's just silly. And then it just turns away. Those statements, of course, are not arguments, they're just assertions. Dishonest doubt, he says, is closed-minded. It refuses to consider the possibility of a being whose purposes and power are far beyond its own comprehension. By contrast, he says, honest doubts are humble because they lead you to ask genuine questions, not just put up a defiant wall. 
You see, when you ask a real question, it puts you in a position of one, humility, and two, vulnerability. Humility, you are admitting that there are some things that you may not understand, that you are admitting that there are some things that might be beyond your comprehension to understand, which is why you're asking the question. Vulnerability, when you ask a question, you just might get an answer. And what if that answer contradicts you? What if it shatters your categories? What if that answer demands things from you that you feel like you're not ready to give yet? Honest doubts are open to belief. You see, if you're really asking God from humble doubt for insight into who he is and what he does, he just might give it to you. Can I tell you what's awesome to me? In answer to Mary's honest, humble doubt, the angel gives to her one of the greatest most faith-producing statements to me in all the Bible. Luke 1:37, nothing is impossible with God. I cannot tell you how many times that phrase has bolstered my faith in the midst of situations. That verse has come to mind and I have said nothing is impossible with God. Here's what's awesome, listen. You know the only reason we have that statement in the Bible is because Mary asked that honest doubting question. What that means is that when you ask God with humble doubts, not only will God enlarge your faith, if you ask it from a position of humility, not only will he enlarge your understanding, he will probably give you understanding that will bless all the people around you because he's gonna give you insight into the wisdom and the promises of God that you're gonna use to share with others. It's like I've often told you, doubt is like a foot that's poised, right? A foot that's poised, you can either go backwards or you can either go forwards. It is true that doubt can drive you backwards into unbelief, but it's also true that doubt is what drives you forward into the deeper understanding of love for God and faith in him. You can't walk forward until you pick up your foot. So the the problem is not your doubts. The problem is, listen, the problem is the heart behind those doubts. The problem is, don't let anybody ever tell you the problem is the doubt. The problem is that when you ask the doubt with a proud and very bitter or very proud and defiant heart that is not open to the possibility that there is a God that is far beyond your comprehension. You need to understand when you come to God that you are dealing with a God who is all wise, all powerful, and you ought to present your question with the humility that being in the presence of that kind of being requires. Verse 38, Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Mary then composes a song in which she rejoices in the promises that God has made to her. So using Mary as our example, let's talk about how we overcome the fear of hopelessness. Three things I think you should have seen in that story. The first one drives the rest, so we're gonna spend a little bit more time on it. Number one, understand and embrace the favor of God. Understand the favor of God. The angel starts his command to Mary to not fear by announcing to her that she has the favor of God. That is important because it's going to be the key to everything else. So what is the favor of God? What does that phrase mean to you? I heard a TV preacher very recently talk about the favor of God in his life as him getting a good parking space at the mall during Christmas time. And he was telling a story about going to the mall and you know what it's like, the, you, know, you have to park six miles away from the building. He said, right as I pulled in, he said, somebody right next to the handicapped spot pulled out and I pulled my car in and I just said, that's the favor of God. That's what it means to have the holy God smiling upon you and Jesus loves me. Is that what the favor of God is? Maybe the house that you've always wanted goes into foreclosure and you're able to buy it for a steal. Your kids are getting straight A's. Every time you smile, your teeth gleam. Is that the favor of God? Is that how you think about it? Well, think for a minute about the situation that Mary is in. 
She's just been told that she's gonna be pregnant with no husband in a culture where this is not only frowned upon, it's punishable by death. The man that she loves, Joseph, is probably not going to understand the situation and will probably leave her. She's already poor. If Joseph leaves her and doesn't have her killed, she'll be destitute. She might have to beg. I mean, if she really had the favor of God, why wouldn't the angel just have stroked her a check? And that's what I would, that conversation I would have had after this one. I'm like, hey, while you're here, how about the next lottery numbers? You know, just kind of slip those to me and then we'll, you know, then I'll really have the favor. Mary doesn't have any of those things. Mary is financially insolvent. She has a ruined reputation. Her most important relationship with her fiance is just falling apart. Yet she rejoices in the favor of God. How? Because a son will be born to her. The son, an angel says, whose name you will call Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What if her main problem, you see, was not her finances? What if it was not a bad reputation? What if her primary problem was a severed relationship with God? What if the reason that she didn't have joy, what if the reason she didn't have purpose had nothing to do with the size of her bank account or the status of her marriage? What if it had to do with where she stood with God? And what if that son would come to set her right with God? You see, the fact that her pregnancy essentially puts her under a curse of death is given as a symbol to you and me of what Jesus was coming for. You and I, like Mary is now, we were under the curse of death because of our sin. The son that was born to Mary basically says, you're under the curse of death, but I'm gonna grow up and I'm gonna die in your place. To us, he says, you're under the curse of death. I am born to a woman, I am born to a race that is under the curse of death because of their sin, but do not fear because I will one day take your place. That's why we say here at the Summit Church that the gospel in four words is Jesus in my place. To understand the gospel, you don't get religious, you have to understand the idea of substitution. That Jesus would live the life that you were supposed to live and then he would die the curse of death that you were supposed to die in your place on the cross. And what the author of the gospel of Luke is screaming to you from the very beginning is that from the pregnancy itself, Jesus's life and ministry would be about taking your place and about substitution. I love my favorite painting on the birth of Christ, I think it's by Rembrandt, is a, is a, um, a, a, a You've got the, the manger scene and you've got the, the, uh, the, the shepherds who have come to worship. And the light source in Rembrandt's painting is coming from behind. And um, one, of the, one of the shepherds is on his knees and he's got his arms outstretched in adoration of the baby Jesus. And the light makes his arms, outstretched arms make this, it's very faint, but you see this shadow of a cross fall across the manger. And what he was showing was that even in the very birth itself, the idea of the cross of Jesus taking our place has been built into the story because that is how God is giving her favor by saying, I will restore, I will restore to you the, um, the, the, the relationship that God wants you to have. The son, the angel says, well, not only will he save his people from their sins, he's going to rule from the throne of David. To the Jews, that's verse 32, to the Jews, David's throne symbolized the restoration of worldwide peace and blessing a condition the Jews called shalom. Shalom means universal peace. We long to see the curse removed from the world. The birth of this baby says, you have pain. I will reverse that pain by sitting on the throne of David, which is the throne that gives shalom. In my Bible reading this week, if you're reading along with us through the Bible, read the Bible RDU, then you read this too, Joel chapter two. Um, God makes a promise to Israel and I love it. Uh, into chapter two, he said, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. 
the locust for the judgment of God. And what God was saying is not only am I going to forgive your sin, I'm gonna give back. I'm gonna multiply to you everything that this fallen world has taken from you. Job, um, Job uh, in the Bible, after he'd suffered for so long, a very couple verses at the end of the book says his last days were filled with God restoring to him sevenfold what he had lost. That is not a promise to you that if you just hang on long enough that you're gonna retire wealthy. That promise is not about this life at all. It's saying that eventually, if it's not in eternity, but not before eternity, God will restore to you everything that this world has taken from you. You have pain, he will reverse it. Isaiah 60, verse four, of one I read recently, that just when I think about some of my friends and the situations they're in, just brings me to tears. Isaiah 60, verse four, God promises Israel, says your sons and daughters that were carried away were gonna be brought back to you on the shoulders of the strong ones. And I don't understand all the imagery here, but what I do know is it means is he's promising them, you, some of you have lost sons and daughters, and there is nothing in life more tragic than losing a son or daughter. And he's telling them, not only am I gonna forgive your sin, but one day, the, maybe the strong ones represent the angels. One day you step foot in eternity and God brings them back carrying them and everything that you lost on earth, every ounce of pain that you went through, God reverses it and he restores to you that peace, that fullness that you have always craved. That is what it means for him to sit on the throne of David. It means that bodies destroyed by disease will leap and run in perfect health. Reputations that have been ruined are restored. Wrongs are made right. In the words of the great author J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, the way he said it is, in that day all the sad things will become untrue. That's weird phraseology, and he chose that weird phraseology on purpose because what he means is that, is that it's not that we'll forget that these things happened. It's not that God will rewrite history. It's that the feeling of loss and permanent damage will be removed and restored to us. And what's more, Tolkien says, is we'll see that God was actually using that pain for our good. It is because Mary went through these things. It is because she went through this unjust death sentence, because she went through hardship that seemed impossible. Because of that, she got to understand Jesus and what he would go through. She got to understand more of who he was and how he would save. So God took her hardship and God reversed it. He used it for good. All the sad things in her life became untrue. And if you walk with Jesus, he is doing the same thing. We have pain, he will reverse it. You have disappointment, he will erase it. In verse 36, the angel brought back up Elizabeth's barrenness. Why bring that back up now? That's got nothing to do with Mary's situation. Why? Well, remember Pastor Chris last week talked about um, for in Israel, for a woman to be married and to die barren represented the ultimate disappointment in life. To bring back up this story in that context is saying that the birth of Jesus is God's answer to erase our deepest disappointments. By the way, do not miss that the birth of Jesus is surrounded by two miracles of pregnancy. They both mean something very important to Jesus' life and ministry. That Jesus was born to a virgin means that the power to save would not come from man, it would come from God. So God did not have a human father for his savior. God himself was the father because salvation cannot be accomplished by any human being, no matter how hard they try. It's a gift from God. That's why the angel said this baby will be called holy because he's not from the human race. He's got your blood in him, Mary, but he's gonna be of the son of the most high because only God can save. That God also surrounded the birth of Jesus, listen, with a pregnancy with an older barren woman is God's way of saying your deepest disappointment. I am going to erase that disappointment. A lot of people have a, what we now call a bucket list. You know what that is, right? You know, list of things you wanna do before you die. I, I've got one, 
standard stuff on it. I want to hike the Inca Trail, streak at the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, want to, I want to meet Nicolas Cage and star on the Left Behind you know, series. Just things that are on everybody's list, right? Well, the idea behind a bucket list is that I need to do these things before I die because YOLO, right? You only live once. And what if you die without experiencing these things? You've lost your one shot. For some, what they would put on that list is not glib at all. It's not a trip to the Grand Canyon. It's not jumping out of an airplane. What's on that list is getting married, having children, being financially stable, being pain-free. I have a bucket list. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a little harmless bucket list, but I just don't take my bucket list that seriously. Why? Because in the resurrection, under the reign of the son of David, every disappointment that I faced in life will be fulfilled. There is no disappointment that I went through. There is no ruined reputation. There's nothing I missed out on that God will not restore and multiply in abundance. I will restore, he says, what the swarming locusts have eaten. The sons and daughters you lost in this life will be brought again from afar. And once again, Joel says, my people will eat and be satisfied and they will never again feel disappointment and they will never again be put to shame. We have pain, he will reverse it. We have disappointment, he will erase it. We yearn for justice, he will restore it. We go through seasons like the one we've just gone through with Ferguson, Missouri, and now what's going on in New York City. And a lot of people ask, is there ever gonna be justice? Some people say, well, where's the justice for the families of the victims? Other people say, well, where's the justice for the police officers and their families? That perfect justice that we crave will be restored when Jesus rules from the throne of David. That is not to excuse our not working for justice now. We should and we, we must. It just means that down here, justice will always be imperfect, sometimes even terribly skewed. Maybe you say, maybe you look around and you say, why do the wicked always seem to go unpunished? Why do those who are hypocrites, why do they prosper? Maybe it's personal to you. Maybe you've been wrong. Maybe it's a, a, a spouse or somebody in your family or a business partner that has wronged you. And you say, where is the justice where it's ever, where is it ever going to come? The angel says to Mary, Mary, have hope. The son has been born who will sit on David's throne. Like I told you, I know that for many, the Christmas season represents a time where they feel pain and loss and injustice and disappointment more acutely. Hope is the expectation of future blessings and the confidence that the best is yet to come. That hope is found in embracing the favor of God given to you in Christ. And what is the favor of God? It is the assurance that Jesus Christ has paid for all your sins. He has restored you as a son and daughter to the almighty God, that God could not love you any more than he does right now because Jesus suffered in your place, that God has promised that one day he will erase every disappointment, he will reverse every pain, um, that he will restore justice, and that he is right now working in your life for good, taking the bad things in your life and using it for his glorious plan. That's the favor of God. God's favor is not always easy. It was not easy for Mary. And sometimes it includes a lot of difficulties, but his favor is always good because it brings to you all the promises and all the presence of Jesus, which is eternal life itself. Which leads me to number two, you doubt with faith. You doubt with faith. Once you have the favor of God, you know that you can doubt with faith. You should ask questions, but you should be open to answers. You should stare upward in wonder at the size of God and in awe of the promise that he's given to you in Christ. 
you ought to meditate on that phrase in the midst of any doubt, nothing is impossible with God. The way that you do that is thinking about the size of the God that you're talking to. Sometimes I, I, I just get overwhelmed reading the first chapter of Genesis, the third verse, I think, where God says, let there be light. Because sometimes I just stop, I'm not even, I'm not a scientist, I'm not hyper-educated on all the scientific stuff, but I think about just the complexity that would be in those four words, let there be light. In those four words, he invented quantum physics. In those four words, he came up with the whole wave particle thing that none of us really understand. In that, in that word, let there be light, he invented the complexity of the atom. He stretched out the universe as far as all of its millions and billions of light years. And sometimes I look up into the sky and I think about the size of the universe and think he created this with a word. And I think, how big is this God? How high must his understanding be? How great is his power? How sure is his word? And then my heart will say, nothing is impossible with this God. Which promise of God do you have trouble believing? Which promise do you feel like, to use Pastor Chris's analogy from last week, which one do you feel like is junk mail? You know, the, he said junk mail, you get this mail, and it's, you know, hey, you're gonna be a millionaire, and you don't pay attention to it, you just throw it away. Which promise of God feels like junk mail to you? Is it Psalm 23, 6? That surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is it Isaiah 43, 2, that when you pass through the waters, they won't overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Is it Romans 8, 28, that all things are working together for good to you who love God and are called according to his purpose? Is it Romans 8, 32, that if God did not spare his own son, he will not also now freely give you all things? Which of these promises seems like junk mail to you? You need to look into the face of your situation and then turn in doubt into the face of the almighty God and say nothing is impossible with God. If God did not spare his own son, he will not also not freely give me all things. So listen, doubt, it's okay. Pick your foot up, but doubt with faith. Now, I know you say, well, that sounds to me like a contradiction. How do you doubt with faith? Those are the opposite things. No, faith is the posture of the heart behind the doubt. The doubt is good. In fact, faith is expressed in doubt. It's saying, pick up your foot, ask your question, but do so by leaving room for an almighty God whose answer might be bigger than you and then pick up your foot and stare at him in wonder and say, God, I don't understand, but I'm ready to understand and I'm ready to search your word for the answer. Number three, surrender it all. Surrender it all. The angel, even though he brought really good news, demanded full and total surrender from Mary. I'll give you a good example of this. He tells Mary what Jesus' name will be. Parents usually name their own kids, right? That's a really important symbol, it's your child. You wanna choose a name that represents something you love you know, from the past or something you want for the kid in the future. The angel says, nope, not this one. You're not gonna call the shots with this one. And see, that's a really important symbol because what it means, listen to this, is that if you're gonna have the blessing of Jesus in your life, if you're gonna have the favor of God in Christ, you gotta fully surrender to him and let God call the shots, even in your most intimate relationships and even in your deepest dreams. Mary's response, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Servant means I have nothing. It's all yours. Let it be to me according to your will and your word means I don't call the shots anymore. I just want what you have for me. You see, you can only be in one of two positions in relationship to Jesus. You're either in full surrender or you're in rebellion. You cannot negotiate your way into the favor of God. But most people try to do that. God, I, I, I'll be good so that you'll give me this. God, I'll, 
I'll go to church so that this will happen. God, I'll give this money so that you'll bless me this way. God, I'll shape up here so that I can earn your favor. There was a guy in the Bible who tried to negotiate for the favor of God. His name was Saul. Saul was told by God to destroy everything in a certain city, but Saul didn't want to because that city was rich. So what Saul did is he took all the plunder and then he took about half of it and he sacrificed it to God. And because his reasoning is, well, God's getting, I mean, he's getting a lot of sacrifices and that makes God happy. And then I also get mine and Samuel comes from God to Saul and says, Saul, what you've done is to God like the sin of witchcraft. It's like Satanism. God does not want your sacrifice. God wants obedience. Saul, you cannot negotiate your way into the blessing of God. There's only one posture you can ever have, and that is complete and total surrender. You're in one of two postures right now in relationship with the Lordship of Jesus. Hear this very clearly. You are not, you know, I'm doing pretty good. You are either totally surrendered or you're in complete rebellion. There's only one deal that Jesus will make. He will give you all of himself for complete control of your life. There is no other negotiation that he will have. Do you want the favor of God in your life? Do you want hope? Hope is found in knowing you have the favor of God given to you as a gift in Christ. You see, I don't know what situation you're in. Maybe you're in a very Mary-like situation. What I can tell you is that if you have opened up your heart to receive Christ, if you have fully surrendered yourself to him, then everything that the angel said to Mary applies to you. So you can believe it. And by the way, don't just give mental assent to it. Don't just nod your head and say, yep, I got the favor of God in Christ. Do what Mary did, ponder it. There's a little phrase in the next chapter. Let me jump there real quick. Luke 2:19. I love this. Mary treasured up all these things. Treasured, she put value on them. She pondered them in her heart until it reshaped her whole life and she burst into song, even in the midst of poverty, even in the midst of destitution, even when her most important relationships were crumbling, she worshiped with joy because she pondered the value of these things and she esteemed them to be a treasure. I heard an example this week that I just thought summarized my relationship with God. It's this, imagine if a relative, or imagine if a lawyer contacted you that a relative that you had never heard of had died and the lawyer said he wrote you into his will, he's left you some money and I went ahead and saw to it that it got deposited right into your savings account. Well, you've never heard of this relative so you assume it's just a token amount, maybe a couple hundred dollars at most. So you just don't even go check the bank account. Um, you're a, a young father and you're trying to make ends meet and you're barely scraping by and you're trying to take care of your family and one day, about five years after this, you go to this savings account because you haven't accessed it in a long time and you pull up the savings account and you realize that there are hundreds of millions of dollars in this bank account. For the last five years, you've been barely scraping by, you've been driving a beater car, you've been trying to barely make ends meet all the while. You've got hundreds of millions of dollars sitting in that bank account. And I saw that and I thought, this is exactly where I am with the favor of God that's been given to me in Christ. I know it, I believe it, but I don't ponder it, I don't understand it. And my prayer is God, help me to know what I already know. Help me to feel what I know to be true. God, I want this to become such a treasure in my heart that it reshapes all of my thinking until my disappointments and pain, even though they're real, I'm not trying to brush them aside, but even though my disappointments and pain are real, they seem so so small in the weight of the treasure that I have in you. 
until worry seems silly because of what I, the treasure I know that I have in the riches of Christ, until the injustices that have been committed against me seem rather trivial and meaningless because of the esteem that I've been given by God in Christ, until freely I let go of everything in my life and I can say with Mary that in Christ I can give up all that I have because in Christ I already have all that I need, until I ponder the riches of what he has given me so that in my hour of being under a death sentence, in my hour of destitution, when my relationships fall apart, I can worship with the same glorious song that she did and I can say, blessed be my God who has given me salvation, who will never leave or forsake me and in whom every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. You wanna know a prayer that you ought to pray in the Christmas season? It's that prayer there. It's what I would call Mary's prayer. In fact, I'm gonna give it to you and give you a few minutes just to soak in it. Behold, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Can you pray that to God? Total surrender. I'm your servant. Just all I want, let it be to me what you have said. I embrace your favor in Christ. And I know that nothing is impossible with you. I could not think of a better season to pray. Honestly, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a believer in Christ or not, that's, I could not think of a better prayer to pray going into this season. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. In just a minute, I'm gonna put that back up on the screen for you and give you a couple minutes in it. But first, I imagine there are some here, maybe many who have never, you've never received Christ personally. The good news I get and privilege to deliver is that what the angel said to Mary, he says to you, it's startling. Oh, favored one, I knew you before you were in your mother's womb. And I appointed this day and I sent my son to die on a cross to suffer the punishment and the shame and the penalty for your sin. A son is born to you if you will receive him. You have to surrender to him. You have to acknowledge that he is the Lord. But if you'll do that, all the favor of God, all my favor will be yours in Christ. If you've never done that, might you do that at this moment? Lord, I believe and I receive. Just say it to him in your own words. I believe and I receive and I surrender. I'm gonna put these two phrases back on the screen here in Summit Church at all of our campuses. I want you just to spend a few moments with it, pray it. And then our worship teams will come at all of our campus and they'll, they'll lead us from here.